for being here today. Thanks to our, our uh, praise team to lead us in, in praise and in worship again every uh, every week as you all do. I appreciate um, you guys and, and your labors and service for the kingdom. Today is, as we've mentioned a couple of times now, one of our uh, twice a year membership Sundays where we've had uh, a time for people to get to know the, the vision and the heart and the mission and the values of who we are. And then, uh, and then um, people saying that I want to be committed to this body and I want to give myself to serving it and building it in such a way that um, I can be counted on. And so that's what today is. We're going to talk about the church today and what we do every membership Sunday is uh, just remind us of what the church is, of who we are, of why we exist and why it's so important and why our mission and our vision and all of our existence is so vital um, to the work of God in, in the world. Oftentimes I I quote from uh, from Bill Hybels, who's a pastor in Chicago and author, and um, once again, I want to read to you what he says, these amazing words about, about the church. And this is what he says. He says, there's nothing like the local church when it's working right. Its beauty is indescribable. Its power is breathtaking. Its potential is unlimited. It comforts the grieving and heals the broken in the context of community. It builds bridges to seekers and opens its arms to the forgotten, the downtrodden, and the disillusioned. It breaks the chains of addictions, frees the oppressed, and offers belonging to the marginalized of this world. Whatever the capacity for human suffering, the church has a greater capacity for healing. The power of the local church is almost more than I can grasp. This is the church. This is who we are when it's working right. So what does it mean for us to work right? I want to look at Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to deviate a little bit from the series that we've been on. But even though this is not part of the series, I still want to show us that this is all about Jesus, that it's all about him. We're going to read from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, and just ask this question, what is a church? What is a church? And uh, we'll find out through these four verses here. In writing about the church, the Apostle Paul writes, Consequently, you, the church, are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him... You too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is God's word. So when Jesus, and we, we quote this song often and we'll sing it later. Let now your church shine as the bride that he saw in his heart when he offered up his life. What was the church that Jesus envisioned that he saw in his heart when he gave up his life? The price that he paid, the price of his own uh, life, blood. The death of Jesus Christ himself, he paid that price. Why? For what? Uh, Three things that this passage shows us. In Ephesians, the gift, a part of the gift of Ephesians is it just, it just expounds on the gospel. If you want a, a simple breakdown of Ephesians, six chapters, one through three, talk about doctrine. Four through six, talk about application. One through three, talk about the gospel. Four through six, talk about its outworking in relationship, particularly in the church and in human relationships that we have. 
The so what of the gospel is what Ephesians is all about. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, begins in verses 11 and 12, he talks about this is who we were before Christ. This was a situation before we encountered Jesus, before Jesus encountered us. Verses 13 through 18 talk about what Jesus has done on our behalf. And then verses 19 through 22 tell us, okay, so what's the deal about the church? Three thoughts, three pictures, three images, three illustrations that Paul gives in these verses. And the first thing, the church is a place to belong. Verse 19, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people. So he's saying before you met Jesus, you were aliens, foreigners, strangers, exiles, wanderers without a place to call home. But when Jesus came into your life, all of a sudden, these scattered group of people have been brought into a place where you're now citizens, a place where you can belong. You, you understand the value of being a citizen, don't you? Or we've had experiences where we felt like we didn't belong. I don't know if you've ever felt like that or if your parents, a lot of us, our parents have felt like that. If you don't, you remember back to last year when this immigration, this controversial law was passed in Arizona. Do you remember this law that said that if a policeman pulls a person over, that they, they can ask them for proof of their citizenship, right? For proof of the fact that they belong there. And if they don't, Right? You may be pulled over for getting a, a normal ticket, but if you're not a citizen, if you don't have a, a green card, you're not legally here, then not only do you get a ticket, but you get a ticket out of the country back to where you came from. This was scary, and it was frightening for many, many people. Thousands of people throughout Arizona were driving. This was an, it was an uproar in the news. The people were driving. Every time they saw those flashing lights, their, their life basically passed before them. That everything that they knew and everything that they had in life could be taken away from them. Why? Because a police officer says, you don't belong here. And that's why so many people do everything that they can to find a way to belong. That's why either you or your parents... You helped your parents, you helped your grandparents study for their citizenship exams. I remember Olivia, her grandmother, straight from Korea, barely spoke any English. But I remember uh, uh, Olivia helping her study for her citizenship exam. She had to answer questions like, and this question is that you and I don't even know. Who is William Rehnquist? Hey, who is he? Some of us know he was a Supreme Court justice, I think. But who, she, had to re- she barely spoke English, but she had to remember who is William Rehnquist. How many states are there in the nation? That one's not that difficult. Who wrote the Star-Spangled Banner? Who is the first president of the United States of America? Who is the current president? Can you recite the Pledge of Allegiance? This is hard stuff. But why did she, for a, a language that she barely knew, did she study all of this stuff? Because she knew the value of citizenship. And she knew the power of belonging. Because if you don't belong, then the world can be a very scary, difficult, dark place. It's being caught, pulled over, and you get sent back. It is hard. It's a hard life out there. But Paul's saying, listen, if you are a child of God, then there's a place where you can belong. A place where it's not, you don't have to be afraid. A place where the broken, the disillusioned, the hurting can come. And they can find in the church a place where they belong. These are Is our church like that? Because this is the kind of a place that Jesus died to create. Is this who we are? Are we a place of belonging? Do you come every Sunday and say, this is a place where I can belong? And do we create 
with our lifestyle, with our words, with the, with the embrace with which we give people when they come? Do we give people a reason to say, this is where I belong? Even though the world out there might be scary, dark, stormy, frightening, when I come on Sundays, I belong. This longing for belonging is so deep that it's the premise for a lot of the great TV shows of our day. In fact, this is not really of our day, but of, a, of an earlier day. TV Guide put out a list of the 50 greatest TV shows ever. And of the top 20, there's this one show. I don't know if you guys have ever seen it. Uh, 1980s, 1990s, 82 to 93-ish. There was a show called Cheers. Anyone watch Cheers before? Okay, so the older part of us in here. So there's a show called Cheers. And basically, Cheers is a bar in Boston. It is an actual bar. And every, I think every episode through the years was filmed either in that bar or in the adjacent restaurant or the pool room, pool table, pool hall behind it. But every episode was centered there right? in this bar called Cheers. And in that place, right, social class was a huge part of this show where people from the upper class could mingle together with people of the working class. People who are addicted to alcohol with sexual addictions can come and they could rub shoulders with psychiatrists and with rich graduate students, medical students, different people from all walks of life, rich or poor, could come together and they would conglomerate in this one place called Cheers. And there, nobody went by their professional titles. It wasn't Dr. This, Dr. That, Mr. This, Mr. That. It was just Sam. It was Frazier. It was Norm. It was Diane. It was Carla. And this longing, it was such a popular show, and so much of it was captured by the theme song, the, the, the song that played at the beginning of the show. It says something to the effect of making your way in the world today takes everything you've got. Taking a break from all your worries sure would mean a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away? And then it's just this, this catchy refrain says, sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. And they're always glad you came. You want to be where people can see our troubles are all the same. You want to be where everybody knows your name. And what the, the writer of that song was saying is, cheers is this place. But what the writer of Ephesians is saying, maybe for a night, maybe for a week, maybe for a series, cheers is that place. But for all eternity, it's the church. And when you come here, Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. And they're always glad you came. You want to be where people can see their troubles are all the same. But you want to be where everybody knows your name. That's your longing. That's my longing. That's the longing of every human heart. The question I want to ask is, do we create a kind of place where people say that? Where they say, because of Chris, because of Hedgin, because of Sulin, because of Jason, because of us, because of us, we've created a place where the world out there is scary, but I come every Sunday and I find a place where I can belong. I go to my house church and I can find a place where I can belong. This is the church. This is the church that Jesus gave his life for. This is the first thing. The church is a place to belong. Second thing. Second thing in, in verse 19, God's people and members of God's 
household. Here's the second thing. Not only a place to belong, but a people to call family. Members together of God's household, literally his family, his oikos, his family. Saying before you met Jesus, you were aliens, you were, you were orphans, you were slaves. But since Jesus came, you've been adopted into, into a family. And now you're a child of God. But not only are you a child of God, but you've got a family. You know, you, you talk to people often, and this is why membership is, is so important. Because you talk to people often who say, you know what, I love God and I love Jesus, but I don't want to be part of a church. Because I can do my church at home. I can do my church online. I can do my church on TV. I can do my church in my Bible study group. But here's what, here's what he's saying. If you're adopted into a family. So we have some, some missionaries in, uh, in Japan, Scott and Susan Murray. And they had two biological children, Sydney and Taylor, two beautiful girls, twin daughters. And just last year, they adopted three girls. They adopted three girls. So when these three girls were adopted, they're adopted by Scott and Susan Murray, definitely. But they're also, okay, not only do they have a mother and father, they're adopted into the Murray family. So now they have two sisters as well. Now, you can't just choose to be adopted by the father and not choose to be part of the family with those brothers and sisters. He's saying the same thing is true with us, but we're not Murrays. We're Christians. And you have been adopted. If you're a child of God, you've been adopted by God as your father, but you also have been brought into a family where you are necessarily related to one another as brothers and sisters. And you can't say that God is my father and not have the church as your brothers and sisters. Now, you can't be adopted into the family of God and say, she is not my sister and he is not my brother. Say, every single person, if you've got the Spirit of God living in you because you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you're a child of God, you're part of the family of God. And what we do when we gather is we have family reunions, and this is not some dysfunctional family. In a dysfunctional family, people hate each other. People don't talk to each other. People hold grudges against each other. They talk about each other, but they don't talk to each other. They want to talk to someone, they talk through someone. That's a dysfunctional family. But if God, our holy, perfect Father, is the Father of all, then this family is not called to be a dysfunctional family. If there's someone that you don't like in this family, then we need to learn to deal with that because we're going to be together for all eternity. And you may share a bed a bunk bed with them in heaven. So we need to learn to walk together here on earth. This is God's call for us. And if God is our father, then we are each other's brothers and sisters. I think one of the great definitions of family has been given by a psychologist named Bronfen, Bronfen Brenner. I think he's a German man. But he said family, this is a family, is a group of people who demonstrate and implement an irrational commitment to the well-being of its members. And that's what a family is. And for my child, for my wife, Olivia, for my children, I, people would say, why would, why would you do something like that? What for, for family members, that's, that's no, it's a no-brainer, right? You do anything for your children. You do anything for your parents. You do anything for your siblings. It's a no-brainer. Why? Because that's what family does. 
we show, we demonstrate, we implement an irrational commitment to the well-being of its members. And people look at us from the outside and say, why in the world would one person do that for another? It's easy. They don't understand that we're family. This is the way it is with our relationships, too. It should be like that, at least. Where the older have become spiritual mothers and fathers to the younger. And so we treat them as such. Where the younger have become spiritual sons and daughters. And in this family of believers, that when one person hurts, then others would be there to help them in that. In 2009, we had a, a high school student. Um, some of, a lot of us remember um, a student named Victor. He was uh, sick with pancreatic cancer. And um, there was a group of six to eight of our high school students. Every week, they would go to his house. They would go to the hospital. And they would talk with him. They would sing to him. They would pray with him. When he was able, they would eat with him. They would try and play video games with him. When he was strong enough, they would take walks with him outside. When they didn't know what in the world to say, they were just there. They were just there. Because that's what family does. In the times when good reports were given and he was released from the hospital and he was happy, they laughed with him and they sang with him and they rejoiced with him. And in times where things were not going well, they were the ones who wept with him and they prayed with him and they encouraged him. They said, hold on, just keep going. We're believing for you. Why? Because that's what family does. That's what a family does. I remember talking with Victor's dad one day when things took a turn for the worse and he needed um, organ transplants. And the the organ donors were few and far between, the kind that he needed at least. I remember having this one very poignant conversation with him, and, and he said, I think either uh, his mother or I will have to give our organs to him. And so my immediate question was, so what does that mean for you and for, the way, for, for your life? And he said, I've not even thought about that. I haven't even thought about that. Because this is my child, and I have no choice. It's not even a question. Because this is what family does. It's a group of people that show an irrational commitment to the well-being of its members. Do people say that Harvest is a family? And it, all of a sudden, it's like, not, it's not about me. It's about other people. This is what family is about. It's not about, oh, I don't want this new person to come to my house church because I'm going to get less attention. That's silly. That's not a family. It's not about, oh, I don't want these new people coming to our church because then it means less food for me on Thanksgiving Day. It's not, it, it, that's silly. That's not church. You can call that whatever you want to call it, but that's not the church that Jesus envisioned. That's not what he's talking about. That's not what he gave his life. He didn't die on the cross for a church to be selfish. And for be all about me. But he died on the cross so that we might incarnate the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. Because the church is not only a place to belong, it's a people that we can call family. The last thing that we see here, the last thing that we see. The church is a place where everyone matters. You look at verse 20. 
verse 21, it says, well, verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as a chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Here's what he's saying. He's saying we are, God is building in us a temple. The temple is a place where God would meet with his people. It's a place where God's presence was tangibly seen. He's saying with Jesus as the cornerstone, once you've got that in place, we too, First Peter says, we are living stones being built together to build a temple in which God's holy presence dwells. What does it mean? It's interesting. He says in him, it talks about Jesus being the cornerstone and we're being stones. We're not bricks, right? Difference between stone and bricks. I don't know much about buildings, but I know the difference between stone and bricks. Bricks are the same. They look the same, but stones are different. Stones are different. They come in all shapes, sizes, colors, weights, dimensions. And it was up to the builder to take these different stones and to put them on top of each other and then to shave them, to carve them, to mold them, to make them in order that they might fit together to be the temple, to be the building that he envisioned the building to be. It doesn't take but two seconds to look around and to see that, hey, there's a lot of people who are very different from me. There are people of a lot different age. We have 12-year-olds in here. and We have Brother Paul, who's going to be 70 in a few years. We've got people who are in school. We've got people who are working. We've got a brother from Angola. We've got people from Korea, Porter. We've got people from different places, different places of life, different stations in life. It doesn't take long for us to realize, you know what? These people are very different from me, and I'm very different from them. But Paul is saying that's the beauty of the temple, that you are living stones being pieced together. And as long as the cornerstone is in the right place, as long as Jesus is the firm foundation, then this temple can be built together. The other thing about, about stones in a temple is not only are we different, but we are, we are indispensable. Every single one is necessary. You ever... You know, if you've got this building, you take one. It's like playing Jenga. I, I said this in Harvest 101, but it's like playing Jenga. you got this building, right? The building, this is the way it's supposed to be. But as soon as you take one of those stones out, one of those Jenga blocks out, all of a sudden things get a little bit shaky. Why? Because every stone is needed. Because every stone is needed. Because every person is necessary to be counted on by the other stones in order for the thing not to crumble like a Jenga tower. With a, with a Jenga tower, you know that you keep on, you keep on playing. Eventually, the thing is going to fall down. So what happens when we feel like, you know what, I don't fit in like the rest of them or I don't like the rest of these people, so I'm going to just kind of pull myself out. Every person is so necessary to accomplish what God wants to accomplish through the church. That's why he says it's like every one of us is a member of a body. Right? Every single one of us is a member of a body. Some are, are hairs, some are eyebrows, some are eyelashes. 
Uh, we think, oh, just one simple eyelash. But if the eyelashes were gone, then sweat would get into your eyes and the eyes would get hurt. And every person is necessary. I, I've said this before, but someone told me once that the, the little toe, your pinky toe, if you didn't have your pinky toe, you wouldn't be able to balance yourself and you'd fall over. Do you know that? I didn't know that. I don't know if it's true, but maybe it is. Maybe you feel like you're the pinky toe and you feel like nobody's going to notice if I'm gone. Every single person, every single person, oh, let's just take out the spleen. No big deal. No one sees me anyways. And every person is important to the body and every person is important to the temple. And what committing to a church is saying, hey, you can count on me. I'll be praying. I'll be serving. I'll be loving. I'll be welcoming. I'll be encouraging. I'll be admonishing. I'll be warning. I'll I'll be helping people in their times of need. I'll be giving. When people are baptized, I will celebrate and I will rejoice. When people come to the saving knowledge of Jesus, I will rejoice with them and I will give them everything that I can give in order to build them up and to strengthen them. When we come to the Lord's table, I'll prepare myself for this celebration meal of the family of God. I will give myself because I know that I'm necessary. Whether people, whether we see that or not, we're so needed and we're so necessary. And every single person matters. You matter to each other. You matter to me. You matter to God. Because this is the way he intended for the church to be. <clears throat> I know some of you might be saying, well, if I'm going to commit to a church. I'd rather commit to a church that's a little bit better, a little bit nicer, a little bit kinder than our church. And I understand that. <clears throat> I want to just remind us in verse 22, <clears throat> it says, in, in him. You too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. The language of verse 22 is all this is a continual present tense. And you're still being built up. You know, when you're building something. So a couple of our our members, James and Casey and their family are going through a, a home renovation project. And they've been uh, pulling up their, their carpet. They've been laying down different floors. And for a long time, they haven't, which one of their greatest joys is having people over at their home <coughs> and extending hospitality. But they haven't been able to do that. Why? Because if you ask them, they'll say, well, our house is a mess right now. There's like all kinds of stuff everywhere. There's dust. It's messy. And we don't want people to come into our house like that. Why? Because their house is still being built. It's still being renovated. It's still in the process of being made. He's saying the same thing is true about the church. One pastor said, our church is a place, it's a building site, not a showroom. And it ought to be messy. It ought to be broken. It ought to be places and pieces missing and all of this messy stuff going on. That's the church. Right? That's what the church is supposed to be. You see, the reason why this is so important, here's why it's so important. Three analogies, okay, three images, and it's, I'm almost done, but three images. He says, one, your citizens to your family through your temple. What does that mean? Citizens, family, temple. Here's what it means. God, his relationship with us. He's king, he's father, and then he lives in us as a temple. We are the temple. 
If you, if, you, if you follow the trajectory here, there is an ever-increasing, ever-deepening intimacy that we're having with God. He's a king of all of us. He's the father, and then he's living within us. With every analogy, there's a greater intimacy that we're experiencing with God. Here's the other part of it. We're citizens together of a country. We're family where temple, stones, one on top of each other, one next to each other, cemented together, connected with no distance in between us. There's an ever-increasing intimacy with the members of the church as well. Here's what he's saying. Here's, here's all this to say one simple point. This is it. You cannot grow in your intimacy with God without growing in your intimacy with the church. That's it. That's it. You can't say, well, I'm going to, oh, life is going great for me because I'm listening to my podcast at home and worshiping Jesus on my own and everything is great. No. Right, you could say that, but you're never going to become the kind of people, intimacy with God, that God created you to have unless you're growing in your intimacy with the church. That's the whole point of Ephesians. And all this possible, we do everything we can to be part of, to be citizens. We do everything we can to, to, to belong to a family, do everything we can to be that intimate with people. But Jesus has paid the price. That's what it says in verses, starting in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Do you know that to be part of a church do you know that to be part of it, to, to do this every Sunday is a privilege and a blessing that people throughout the world would, they would kill to have. I, as we're getting missionary, our, our missionaries are sending their Christmas greetings. And as I look at them, I, my heart is filled with such love for them. But some of them are in places where they can't do this. They can't meet together. They can't sing together. I think about guys like Kenneth Bay in North Korea, who's a man of God. And what he, what he would do in order to be together in a community like this right now, to be able to sing in the worship, to hear the word of God, to hear testimonies, but in, in isolated in a, in a communist regime as he waits for his release. People who are sick, who are imprisoned, people who are persecuted for their faith would do anything in order to trade seats with you and me and to be here. And this is a church. This is an amazing privilege. Let's not take it for granted. Let's pray. So we uh, reflect the church is a place of belonging. Is it? Church is a family. Do you feel that way? Church is a place of intimacy. More so than are you experiencing that, the question is, are you creating that for other people? Are you creating that for others? Let's just take a half a minute right now. We're um, just going just, to just pray for a minute and say, Lord, help me to build this kind of a church. We're going to um, just pray for a minute. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to hear some testimonies from a few of our folks. So just pray, Lord, help me to be the kind of person that would build our church, to be the kind of church that Jesus envisioned when he offered up his life. Help me 
I'm just one person, but I can do something. I can't do everything, but I can do something. Whatever I can do, I want to do in order that our church might shine for you. Let's pray for just a minute, and then we'll uh, continue. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the ways in which you have redeemed and saved us and saved us not only out of something, but into a church, into a body. We thank you for this grace that is ours to week in, week out come and to allow the self-defeating kingdom of ourself to be dismantled in order that the kingdom of God might be established again in the throne of our hearts, where we would relinquish desire for control to you and find hope and freedom and joy in giving it to you. Thank you so much that you've called us to be your church. And in places where we fall short, which are many, for that we repent and ask your transforming mercy to be over us. For the places in which we're shining, thank you for that grace. May we shine even brighter. May we be a church that honors you, that loves you, that makes you known amongst our world, in our community, for the glory of God. We thank you so much. We love you because you've loved us first. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.